Those of you who are friends with us on Facebook, I apologize. You may have heard this already, um, but something happened at our house this week. We, we were having dinner one night, and we were talking about Joseph in the Old Testament, how he went through some stuff. I mean, he was a, a slave, then he was wrongfully imprisoned, and I threw out the question to the family at dinner, do you guys think he was ever discouraged? I do. <laughs> he's human, right? I know God was with him, but he's human. There had to be moments where that guy got discouraged. I shared, you know what? Something we can hold on to is even in the middle of that waiting and that darkness, God was working out a plan. He was working out a plan for Joseph to be raised up to second in the land to provide food, not only for the nation of Israel, but for many others as well. My oldest son, Jaden, who's 15 and the oldest of three brothers, looked up with a twinkle in his eye. If you know Jaden, you know that look. And he said, so the moral of the story is sell your brother. <laughs> We all laughed for a bit. <laughs> Came back around to remind them of the real moral of the story, which I know he knew that even in the waiting, even in the darkness, God is working towards his desired outcomes. I think that's one of the purposes of prophecy. Because we're in a period of waiting. And we live in a world that is often very dark. Part of the purpose of prophecy is to remind us that even in the waiting, even in the darkness, God is working all things according to his perfect plan. So when we started this three weeks on Jesus' words on the last days, we said we find encouragement in God's foreknowledge that, that he knows all. He knows all, so when he predicts something, we know it will happen. Predicted the first coming, it happened just as predicted. He's now predicted his second coming. It will happen just as he's predicted. We find hope in his foreknowledge. We find comfort in his faithfulness. You remember we talked especially about his faithfulness to the nation of Israel and how we as a church, when we look at the way he is and will keep every one of his promises to them, he will also keep his promises to believers in Christ today. Today, I want to talk about how we find hope as believers in his future coming and his physical kingdom, which he will set up. Hope is essential in the life of the believer. It's under assault in this dark world. Maybe you've felt the assault on, on hope. I, I think of what Paul talked about in Romans 8, 18. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he goes on to talk about how we're groaning. This world is groaning in its fallenness. We're, we're groaning as we await the redemption of our bodies and, and hope for that day. Anybody feel that groan in this world? That last song was all about it. But I love where he closes there, that section in Romans 8, verse 24. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we will wait for it with patience. Amen. So we're going to jump back into Mark chapter 13. 
as Jesus talks about his second coming. Verse 24, as he goes on with his disciples. In those days, after that tribulation, you remember he had been talking about the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist would set up in the temple and demand worship, the tribulation, that seven-year period, after the rapture, as I believe, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. If you know your Bible, this is full of Daniel 7. They'll see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. I already shared that I believe this is not the rapture because I believe it's that happens before the tribulation. You'll have to go back a couple messages on YouTube and listen to all the reasons why. If you differ, that's okay. But I believe it's different for that reason. Also, when you read about the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4, where, where do we meet him? In the, sky. in the air. Yeah, I'm going to fly, right? I'm going to fly. The second coming is different from that. We know from Zechariah 14.4 that his feet are going to touch down on planet Earth. You know where? The Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, the same place he's teaching these guys in this passage. So that's one difference between the rapture and the second coming. Also, in 1 Thessalonians 4, when Paul talks about the rapture, he doesn't say anything about angels gathering us up. and just talks about flying up there. Here you see the angels gathering his elect from the four winds. So who's this elect? I believe along with others that at least some of them are the faithful believers who come to believe during the tribulation and stand firm to the end, okay? Tribulation, second coming, right on the heels of that. You know what I believe It's going to going to happen on this planet, something you may have heard of known as the millennium. How many of you have heard of the millennium? A thousand year physical reign of Christ on the literal throne of David in Jerusalem. There's some verses about what will happen during that period when Satan is bound for that thousand years. Verses in the Old Testament like the, the deserts will burst into bloom. The lion will, will lay down with the lamb. And people will come from all over the earth to Jerusalem to worship King Jesus, who will rule with an iron scepter. Without hitting everything in between, after that thousand years, we move on to the time where you know this planet and the current heavens above will be destroyed as we know them. And he'll make a new heaven and a new earth, and, and you read about that beautiful city encrusted with gems coming down out of the sky, the new Jerusalem, a, a cube 1,500 miles wide by 1,500 miles high by 1,500 miles long. There will be the new heavens and the new earth. There's no way we can talk about everything there. 
But that's our hope. I think the, the, the key of it all, though, if you sum up what's most important about that for the believer who, who ends up there, Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you see the bookends of this book? It, it finishes where it starts. Mankind in perfect fellowship with their God, thanks to all that Christ has done. Now, how many of you have ever heard the phrase, some Christians are, are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good? You ever heard that phrase? I was talking with Jay about that one time. Jay goes to the 830 service. He said, you know what? I, I, I believe it's just the opposite. Because as Christians grasp onto the hope of what we have coming, it motivates us to faithfulness in this passing journey. It, it drives us. So I'd encourage you to know as much as you can about the hope of the believer. Read Revelation. Read Daniel. Read Ezekiel. Read Isaiah. Read Zechariah. But if you're like me, when you're going through some of that, how many of us will confess it's a little bit overwhelming? <laughs> I will confess that. There's so many pieces. I thank the Lord that He has provided teachers throughout the history of the church to help us unpack it. And some of you are saying, I'd, I'd like some of those teachers with me as I go along. I want to recommend a couple teachers that have been a blessing to me as we've been in this series. I do this for a couple reasons. One, God provides teachers for the good of the body. Two, I'm going to recommend a few because especially when you get to the last days, you've got to be careful who you listen to. I'm not talking about people who differ about when the rapture is and things like that. Good people differ on it, but... There is some teaching out there about the last days that has nothing to do with the Bible. So for that purpose, I'm going to recommend a couple. The first one is really written at an accessible level. Uh, if you want to just jump right in, dive in, you could probably read the whole thing in a week. Tony Evans wrote a book called The Best is Yet to Come, Bible Prophecies Through the Ages. This is a wonderful book about the last days. You want to get a little more scholarly, but still not get too long. Uh, Charles Ryrie has a book called The Final Countdown, another one I highly recommend. When it comes to Israel in particular and God's faithfulness to them, John Walvoord wrote a book called Israel in Prophecy. Great read. Now, for those of you who want to get real in-depth, want to go deep, and don't mind spending some time, you, you want to know not just about pre-trib, even though that's what the author is here, Paul Benware, you want to know why some folks are mid-trib, why some are post-trib, why they differ about the millennium. This is the book for you. Understanding End Times Prophecy, A Comprehensive Approach by Paul Benware. He was one of my professors at Moody Bible Institute. If you really want to dive in, those are just a few. But however you do it, at the very least, at the very most, I should say, read the Bible on it and ask God to give you a firm hope of what is to come for the believer, okay? That was Jesus' prediction about his second coming. 
Now, if you remember from several weeks ago when we started this, what do we say about Jesus? When, when he talks about prophecy, does he give us prophecy just so we can know a lot of cool facts and put up some cool charts and argue about them? No. No, when, when Jesus shares prophecy, it, it is always very practical. He shares it because it is to affect the way we live in this world as believers. So we're going to move on from predictions to what I'll call prescriptions. In light of the fact that I'm coming back, here are some ways to live. Verse 28, he's talking to his disciples from the fig tree. Learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. He, he pulls something from nature, and those of you who take care of trees in your yard and have been doing it for years, you know the patterns. You look out there, you know that one's going to bloom first, then that one, and you know what's coming, right? People can tell the seasons from the, the fig tree in Israel. Summer is near. He said, just like that, when, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Now, I believe he's telling these folks this about the second coming. You know why? I don't personally believe there's anything else that has to happen before the rapture happens. That could happen at any moment as far as I'm concerned. 1 Thessalonians 4, as Paul talked about it, he talked with such expectation. He said, we who are left will, will meet up with them. He had this expectation that it could be then, and I believe that was right. Jesus could rapture the church at any moment. There is no sign that I know of that needs to precede that. I believe he's talking about the second coming. Folks that go through the tribulation, he's saying, when you see that abomination of desolation in that temple, you know he's near. You know he's near. That's that second coming at the end of the, the tribulation. He's at the very gates. Verse 30. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That's a tricky verse. Skeptics have used that verse to say Jesus was wrong. Jesus messed up. How could he be God? He said, this generation, he's talking to Andrew and Peter and James, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What is how do we explain that? Well, there's a couple possibilities. One, he could be talking about the destruction of the temple that happened in A.D. 70. You remember we said he's answering two questions for his disciples. One about when's the temple going to be destroyed and the other about what is the sign of the end. So he could be saying the temple will be destroyed while your generation is still here. Others have said this generation could mean the one that sees the beginning of those signs in the tribulation, that generation will also see the finish of it because it's going to happen quickly. Lastly, the word generation is a tricky one. It can mean race. So many have taken the stance that what he's saying is the race of Jews will not pass away until all these things take place. Do I know which one it is? No. No. 
I only share that with you so you're prepared and can say, look, Jesus was not wrong. <laughs> there are a lot of possibilities here. You've got to dig a little bit deeper. But after the fig tree has learned its lesson, as soon as its branch becomes tender, puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, you see these things taking place. You know that he's near at the very gates. He goes on, verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the sun, but, but only the Father. So if you're perceptive and you're looking at those two things, you're saying, how do those go together? You, you tell them to watch. And when you see this sign, you know it's near. But then he's saying, no man knows the day or the hour. <laughs> what, what's going on here? Well, a couple possibilities. One, he's saying, when you watch those signs and you're in the tribulation, you can be approximate. You, you see that, that abomination in the temple? You, you can know it's getting close, but you can't be exact. Even then, you're not going to know the exact day or hour when he returns. What kind of attitude does that promote among people? It could. I'll show you the kind of attitude Jesus wants it to, to promote, that, that not knowing the, the day or the hour. Verse 33, and I think this applies to those in the tribulation, but it also applies to those of us who are waiting for that rapture. Verse 33, what's he say? Be on guard. Keep awake, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Keep awake. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge. Jesus has gone on a journey. He's ascended to the Father, right? And he's left his servants in charge. Who are his servants today? The church. Believers. Okay? Each with his work. We each have our work to do while the master's with his father. And, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. He said, keep awake. Now he's saying, stay awake. Verse 35, therefore, stay awake. That's the third time he said, awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. Those are all night shifts in the Roman calendar, which many believe indicates that Jesus will come at a time when we least expect it. When we least expect it. Lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Four times, awake, awake. I asked the first congregation this morning at 8.30, what, is, what does that mean? Frank was sitting there in the third row. He said, it means stay awake. <laughs> Amen. Amen. But how do we break that down? Well, let me explain it. When you, when you look at the, the parable of the doorkeeper watching and the people working, I think staying awake as a believer involves at least two things, watching and waiting for his return on the one hand and working in his absence. It's an attitude that I've summed up as eyes on the sky, boots on the ground. You don't want to be just eyes on the sky, just go out and be a hermit somewhere and, and not do anything for the Lord. 
But you don't want to be just working either. You, you want to have both. Eyes on the sky, boots on the ground. When I think about his phrase, stay awake, I think about how our enemy loves to take the things of the Lord and counterfeit them. Stay awake. Is there not a movement in this world that's pushing everyone to be woke? Listen, when you look below the surface of a lot of that, you know all that is is a bunch of humanistic philosophy that rails against the word of God. It's just like the enemy to take something Jesus would say and twist it. You know what the real stay awake is? You read this book and live your life according to all that it says, and you keep your eyes on the sky waiting for Jesus to return, and you keep your boots on the ground working for him. That's the real, real woke. We got to stay awake. He's coming. And I know he's talking primarily to believers here, but there's some application for the person that doesn't know Christ too. Because there is a judgment we call the great white throne judgment in Revelation where every person who has rejected Christ as their Savior and Lord will stand before him. If you haven't come to Jesus as your Savior and Lord, one of the things you need to stay awake about is you need to decide right now. You're either going to meet him one day as your Savior or the judge who condemns you to an eternity in hell. Matthew 25, 46 speaks of those who will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There are those even in the church who try to argue that hell can't be forever. God wouldn't do that. Surely they'll be destroyed after a period of time. The trouble with that, the same word used for the righteous into eternal life is used for those who go away into eternal punishment. Eternal is eternal. So part of staying awake for the person who hasn't come to Christ yet is accept his offer now. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Don't wait. Don't wait. Jeremy Taylor was a preacher in the 1600s. When you read some of those preachers from back then, it's a lot like reading the King James Bible. They preach like, like the King James Bible. And I was reading some of his writings, so I want you to get through some of the these and thous if you trip on those, because what he says is valuable. You don't hear a lot of preaching like this anymore. He, he talks about the scene where unbelievers stand before the Lord Jesus Christ for judgment. Listen to what he says, because I do not want this to be you. He says, how shalt thou look upon him that fainted and died for love of thee, and thou didst scorn his miraculous mercies? How shall we dare to behold the holy face that brought salvation to us? And we turned away and fell in love with death and kissed deformity and sins. He goes on to talk about how there is joy in heaven when a sinner repents. That brings joy to God and the angels. He says, what man is so vile, such a malicious fool, that will refuse to bring joy to his Lord by doing himself the greatest good in the world. 
Then he, he closes this section by saying this. It will be an infinite amazement to meet that Lord to be our judge whose honor we have disparaged, whose purposes we have destroyed, and whose love we have trampled under our profane and impious feet. Do not let that be you, friend. Today is the day of salvation. The Lamb of God died to take away the sin of the world. Meet Him by grace through faith today. The unbelievers got to be awake to the reality of Christ's return. But so do believers. How many of you have heard of the Bema seat of Christ? You may have even seen that term Bema at your house. Anybody seen that at your house? A couple of you have. Where did you see it? The toilet. Bema. You know what Bema means? Throne. And, and I know some of you guys in here, if you're like me, you get your cell phone in there and that's your throne at your house, right? That's your, your, your sanctuary. Bema is the Greek word for, for throne. Now, if you forgive me for that, we're going to go much higher and holier to... to to an infinitely more important throne, the, the throne of Christ. Okay, forgive me. <laughs> Where well, you know what? Every believer is going to give an account. Not for our salvation, that's settled by grace through faith, but for our faithfulness with the opportunities that he's given us in this life. And not just the things we did or didn't do, but the, the motivations behind what we did or didn't do. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Is whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Now, he can't be talking about pleasing God positionally, right? Paul, of all people, said that's settled by grace through faith. We're, we're justified. What's he talking about? He's talking about actions. He's talking about by the power of the Holy Spirit and faith, living lives in a way that please Him. Why? Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What's that about? Well, 1 Corinthians 3, he talks about it a little more. He, he talks about how... He, he lays the foundation of Christ everywhere he goes and preaches, but every believer after that builds on that foundation of Christ with our lives. And he says, verse 12, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. It'll be seen for what it is and, and why it was. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. There's a reward at stake at the, the Bema seat of Christ for, for faithfulness. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now listen, I know some of us read passages like this and you say, reward shouldn't factor into how I live. You know, 
it should be all about because I love Jesus. And I agree that should be primary. But if you say reward shouldn't factor in at all, you've got to take that up with God. Because he mentions it a number of times in the New Testament. He knows how we operate. I think about something Aaron told me about when, when a leader is leading uh, a group through something. He said, look, if you, if you put out expectations, that's one thing. But guess what? If you don't inspect it, don't expect it. Right? God knows how we're wired. And there's no shame in having this as one part of why I do what I do underneath my love for Christ. There's challenge in this. Time is short. And you and I will give account as believers for what we did with our opportunities here. Maybe it's just because I'm getting older going to be 50 in five short years, maybe because I'm becoming more aware that Christ could come back at any moment. The shortness of time hits me more these days. There's an urgency that we have to live with. A few weeks ago, I spent three full days with 14 people in our community. I knew they were coming, and, and I told Carolyn, let's pray that God would open up opportunities with these folks. I don't want to waste three days with this group. I went through the, the first two days, and there was a bunch of small talk. One, one conversation I remember in particular, there was a guy in the group who was an author, and he was sharing that he wrote some science fiction. He told another guy, he said, I've, I've also done some ghost writing. And the other guy said, well, I've been wanting to read some about the paranormal. I'm not sure what that's what he meant by ghost writing, but we had lots of conversations like that. Small talk. But the third day, the third day near the end of our time together, I was talking with a young man and a lady who were in the group, and, and the lady said something. She just said, I don't understand what it is. Why do so many people feel that they have to be high just to be satisfied, just to get through life? What is it with drugs? And the Holy Spirit started poking me. This is your last chance. And he led me to share, look, my take on it is this. Every human being that walks this planet is looking for satisfaction. And we try to find it in a lot of places, a lot of people, and a lot of places, and a lot of people let us down. And so some people turn to drugs looking for that, and they let us down too. The only one I know of who never lets us down is Jesus in John chapter 4, he met a woman and told her, I'm the living water. Whoever drinks of me will never thirst again. And I confess, I don't always live with my eyes open like I did with that group, but we need to. Time is short. Opportunities abound. The fields are white unto harvest. So there's challenge. Peter said, 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? He says you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. There's challenge in the beam of seat. But I also want to encourage you. 
because as I started, I know hope is under assault, even in the lives of believers. I meet folks regularly, believers who are discouraged. And I go through seasons of it myself. You, you look at the vast amount of darkness in the world and you feel like, what, what difference is my life making? I don't see the fruit of my labor. I'm discouraged. And hope gets assaulted. I want to encourage you. How many of you have heard of Harry Ironside? He's a fabulous preacher at Moody Memorial Church decades ago, author. He got discouraged. And I want you to hear his words, and maybe this will encourage you. He said, I remember one time I had prayed so earnestly for a meeting. And I spent so much time before God, and my expectation was great. I just poured my heart out in the message that night, but there was no response at all. Nobody seemed to be interested. And I did not even try to get down to the door to meet anybody. I felt so discouraged. So I slipped out the back way and went home. He, he snuck out of the church. That's how discouraged he was. Went home and threw myself down on my knees and cried out to the Lord, telling him what a complete failure I was. And that nobody got any blessing. I was so utterly disheartened. Then about three months later, I got a letter from a young woman who had been singing in the choir. She wrote me and said, I've never told you my salvation. And I feel that before you go, he was going on to another church, I ought to tell you. She gave me the exact date. She said it was so vivid in her mind that she would never forget it. I was singing in the choir that night, in fact, she said. I sang a solo. I always thought I was a Christian, but that night God revealed my own heart to me. I saw that I had never been converted. And when you asked for anybody who wanted to receive Christ to come to him then, I had such an urge to walk down to the platform and publicly confess Christ, but I was ashamed. I went home so miserable, so wretched. But thank God, before I retired, I broke down before him. I got down on my knees and confessed my sins and took Christ as my Savior. And everything has been so different since. I never had the courage to tell you before, but felt that I must tell you before you left. Harry says, I checked up and found that it was that night when I was so utterly discouraged. That night, God had wrought a miracle in that young woman's life. And, and he closes this section by saying, I think there will be many things like that in our moment before the Bema Seat. Listen, you may not always see the fruit, but be faithful. Be faithful. Because the enemy would love to come along. He'd love nothing more than to bury you as a believer in condemnation and discouragement and keep you from being faithful. He knows we need hope to be faithful. I'm going to show you a movie clip. This movie has always meant a lot in my life because it was the first VHS our family ever rented back in the day when VCRs came out. It was special to me. How many of you remember the never-ending story? Okay, just a quick summary. Quick summary. There's this world called Fantasia, and it's being destroyed by a darkness called the nothing that is destroying everything in its path. 
and there's an evil character named the Gamork. You're going to meet him. He looks like a wolf in this video. He's working with the nothing. He's going to have a conversation with Atreyu, the, the warrior on the right side of things. And I want you to listen to the conversation about hope. Go ahead. is essential to standing against the darkness enveloping our world. And I want to encourage you today, because I know there are likely some folks in this room, even as believers, who are discouraged. You've been faithful and you haven't seen the fruit and you're wondering what difference does it all make anyway. I read a psalm this week and I want to pray a few things over you. Psalm 92, the, the title says it's a song for the Sabbath. That day when Israel would rest and express their trust in God and, and focus more intentionally on Him, apart from work and everything. And there are five things I read in there yesterday that, that filled me up that I want to pray over you. I won't read the whole psalm. I'd encourage you to. But Psalm 92.4 says, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. Father, I pray for the believers in this room that they would be made glad today by your work. The work you've done in the past, help them to celebrate it again. The work you're doing right now and the work you will do in the future that we're looking ahead to. Make your people glad this morning, please, by your works. Verse 10, the author says, you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You say, what in the world does that mean? It means you gave me strength. Like, why didn't he just say that? Because this is a poem. <laughs> All right, you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. The horn of the ox is his strength in battle. And he says, you've exalted it. You've given me strength. Lord, I pray strength. Upon those in this room who feel weak today, their hope is under assault. Give them strength to hold to your word, to cling to your promises, and take that next step, please, Lord. He says, you have poured over me fresh oil. Oil was a precious gift. If you had oil poured on you, that was a generous act. 
on behalf of the person that did it. And it was a sign that you were set apart for a specific purpose. Lord, I pray for every believer in here to realize the precious gift of the Holy Spirit with which they have been anointed and indwelt. Thank you for him. Please encourage them that they have been set apart for a specific purpose. Give them hope that you wish to work in and through their lives with the gifts you've given them. And hope that it's your power, even in the middle of our weakness. Thank you for anointing us. Two more. Verse 12 says, The righteous flourish like the palm tree. They don't just grow. They flourish. They flourish. Father, I pray for the believers in the room that by your strength, by your word, by your spirit, we would do more than just get by. That you would cause us to flourish in the calling with which you put on our lives. Please cause us to flourish. And last but not least, verse 14 says, they still bear fruit in old age. They bear fruit. Father, I pray for each believer in this room. Encourage us. We're still here. You're not done. You don't give up on your projects. You'll be faithful until that day of redemption. Please bear fruit in our lives. And whether we see it or not, help us to be faithful. Until that day we meet you face to face. I pray you found that as encouraging and filling as, as I did yesterday psalm 92 i just want to close by reminding us all look if you're discouraged today if your hope's under assault jesus is coming back he's coming back he will make all things right i was dealing with just some of the discouragement of life in this fallen world a couple weeks ago and it came out in the form of a poem Mosquitoes and COVIDs and cancers can steal the hearts of the dancers. Beware lest rhythms of hope be stripped away. For mosquitoes and COVIDs and cancers are not life's final answers. We yearn for the dawning of day. Peter talked about that in 2 Peter 1.19. We have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you would do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I'll close with the final words of Revelation 22. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Can you all say that with me? Let, let me say his line. Yes, I'm coming soon. And then I want to hear us say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. He who testifies of these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Father, thank you so much. So much for being a God who communicates so much to us. You did not leave us guessing. You gave us your word. 
Thank you for the words Jesus unpacked for his disciples and for us. Encourage the brokenhearted today, the believer whose hope is under assault and maybe feels like a candle about to blow out. Strengthen them today. Draw the lost to the Savior that they might find true hope for the first time. Lord, help us to stay awake. Help us to be faithful. Help us to know that time is short. Help us to be encouraged. The fruit is your department. We are told we are branches. We are to be branches in the vine, which is Jesus. You said, apart from me, you'll, you'll bear no fruit. The fruit is your department. Help us to be faithful. Keep us encouraged whether we see the results or not. It's for your glory and your kingdom. I thank you that you are coming again. Help us to keep our eyes on the sky and our boots on the ground. Lord, even as we take our offering this morning, may it be one more act of surrendered worship to the coming King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.